Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and here we are. We're up for another episode of In the Shift podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, always appreciate the fact that people listen. Otherwise, I'm just, I guess, someone shouting into the internet void out there in the wherever that is. I don't know where that is. It's an existential question. But um, anyway, thanks for tuning in. Things are going pretty well around here. It's been a sleep-deprived week as our little uh, little baby boy, who's nine months this week, um, is has been has been pretty unwell. So um, there's been some long, slow nights of uh, a very unhappy little bubba. So we're running slightly less than optimal sleep levels. So either that's going to make this particular episode spectacular because in that state I'm going to have some profound insights to share. Um, let's just go with that. I'm not going to give any other options. It's going to be spectacular. Yes. <laughs> Already the sleep deprivation, deprivation is giving me uh, unnatural levels of self-confidence. Anyway, over the last couple of episodes, I've been exploring the relationship between science and faith. And this has all been a part of our In the Flesh series, looking at humanness and embodiment and spirituality and how those things intersect. And uh, in the science-faith conversation, I've more specifically been wanting to zero in on the theory of evolution for a couple of reasons in particular. And firstly, and something I've already talked about a bit over these last couple of episodes, is that there are a lot of people, both religious and not, Christian and not, who think that evolution and religion or Christianity are not compatible. And so you end up having to make a choice. Do I trust the science and the scientists or do I trust the Bible and my faith tradition and the church? And having to either decide that science and evolution is a bad theory, um, you know, there's a conspiracy of atheists trying to disprove God and everybody's in on it. Um, so that's kind of one option or the other option is that Christianity and other religious systems are clearly silly because, you know, you're required to deny science and so it's just a superstitious, outdated way of understanding the world and our origins and so on. So often people feel that they're, having, they're being squeezed into either of those two camps, uh, maybe subconsciously, maybe even not aware of that. And, and some people getting in touch over these last few weeks just letting me know that they weren't necessarily, well, they knew that there was this tension but hadn't necessarily had it named in this kind of way and didn't necessarily know what their options were in relation to it, especially people within uh, the institutional church. So my argument's been that this binary and quite oppositional way of thinking about science and faith and evolution and faith is entirely unnecessary. That Christian faith in particular, because again, that's my tradition, does not require the abandoning of science and any kind of healthy religious framework, any kind of spiritual paradigm should be interested in truth, should be interested in knowledge, and should actually let that truth help us in our understanding of reality, rather than you know putting our hands over our ears and just hoping it all goes away. Now, that doesn't mean science has the last word on every conversation, because there are some questions science is not particularly well equipped to deal with. Um, but having said that, we should not ever be afraid of truth, Right? So that's the first reason I think this has been an important conversation. And the second reason, I guess, is, is more than that, which is that actually if we can open ourselves up to this whole discussion, then we bump into a whole wealth of knowledge about what it means to be human, about our embodied reality and how we can understand that, and it provides us with more information to reflect on. 
as we think about language, even of connectedness and spirituality and even of the soul and of, of our brains and our bodies and the way all of these things interrelate and interconnect. And so if we're going to talk about meaningful spirituality that actually helps us to navigate um, human flourishing, right, then surely this is an important part of the conversation. So we want to bring these worlds together, in my opinion, or at least that's an option available to us, the world of science and the world of spirituality and faith. And if we do that, then maybe we can find our way into some really interesting and helpful conversations about this life that we live. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the kind of person who reflects on the life that you live, who's wrestling with questions and meaning and trying to figure out, you know, this particular kind of human experience and maybe something about religion and faith and theology and connectedness. And these are particularly human kinds of questions to be exploring. So it's that second part, it's this part of the conversation that I really want to focus on in this episode. And so to do that, I'm going to make several observations about how thinking about evolution um, as the means by which human beings kind of arrive in the form that they do can help us to reflect on our humanness and then uh, make some observations and reflections about how that intersects with our theology and spirituality. So this is episode 28 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so we're going to start with a bit of a conversation briefly, very brief, about when humans emerge um, and kind of what's happening there. So as best as we can tell, it was about two million years ago, which is a long time, that the first hominids that resemble something similar to like what we would understand human beings to be came on to the scene. So here's this distinction from kind of our ancient ape ancestors to what's now characterised by the genus Homo. So if you remember your uh, school biology, I don't know if you do, uh, but generally everything's given a genus which groups things into like families based on certain similarities and characteristics. Um, And so the Homo genus emerges about two million years ago, and these are our ancient ancestors, the first, and I won't go through all of the various different... um, specificities of, of the kind of varieties we see emerge in the Homo genus over, that, over the next period of time. But really, fast forward a, a big part of that journey, and it seems like, as far as we can tell, Homo sapiens, in other words, human beings, as we understand them now, emerge onto the scene about 195,000 years ago. So actually, relatively recently, unless you're a young Earth uh, literal six-day creationist, in which case the world is 6,000 years ago, so maybe 195,000 seems like a long time. Uh, but in the scope of the universe and of the existence of the Earth and even of the uh, emergence of life on the Earth, we're talking very recent terms, really, the Homo sapiens emerge. Now, about the same time, and, and this is happening on the African continent, as far as we can tell, is where the Homo sapiens first pop up in the fossil record, records. About the same time, on a slightly different part of the African continent, and as a slightly different tributary on the evolutionary track to Homo sapiens, part of the same genus, um, uh, we have the Homo neanderthalensis, uh, commonly called the Neanderthals. Now, although it's often characterised this way, the Neanderthals are actually not our direct ancestor, but a sort of si- a simultaneous sidetrack to the Homo sapiens. Um, 
they share some similarities with us, it appears. They were hunters, they developed tools um, and so on. But as far as we can tell, over quite an extended period of time, their technology, if you like, didn't really change at all. Their tools stay pretty much the same. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any kind of development or advancement in their experience other than just uh, maintaining their existence on, on their part of the African continent for quite some period of time. And it seems there's, you know, some of this is not firm, of course, but it seems that um, as far as we currently know, Neanderthals disappeared from the scene not long after we first start to see Homo sapiens move into that particular area on the African continent. So it's possible and, and quite likely, given what we know of Homo sapiens, I suppose, i.e. us, uh, that that had something to do with the disappearance of the Neanderthals in that region and from the world. So Homo sapiens turn up with a slightly different capability and capacity and that probably results in the expiration of the Neanderthals. Now for Homo sapiens, for human beings, it seems likely that about 100,000 years ago, from what we can tell, there is a kind of shift that takes place. And this is not some rapid jump ahead in terms of we suddenly started walking upright or whatever. That, that kind of stuff's already happened. But something happens in terms of our capacity to... Um, advance ourselves in particularly distant kinds of ways. And evolutionary theorists uh, reflect on two particular things that they think may have happened here. Uh, one of them is this human capacity to begin to utilise symbols for conceptualization and communication. Uh, in other words, rather than just having kind of a swimming pool of data, Homo sapiens begin to develop symbols which can encode and interpret that data. So one of the ways we see this is through language, for example. So the development of language is a, language is a set of symbols uh, representing ideas, and so not just concrete things, but actually the communication of ideas and of thoughts. Um, so the development of sim a symbolic capacity um, and the gives the ability to communicate in quite advanced and uh, particular and distinct ways that human beings are still capable of doing uh, in ways that other species are not. Not only is that language, but we also then get art is related to this kind of symbolic capacity. So is the development of culture, uh, and even we might say the capacity for religion and for religious notions and ideas and beliefs and the passing on of those beliefs from generation to generation and, and so on. So uh, there's this kind of emergence uh, in the human being of this capacity to use symbols to make sense of the world and to communicate. And kind of related to that, some other you know, evolutionary theorists reflect on this uh, capacity of the mind. In other words, perhaps what's happening at this time along with and related to uh, the symbolic capacity, and this is, uh, you know, we're not sure necessarily which one chicken and egg kind of scenario here. But it appears that something that's happened within the, within the Homo sapiens at this time is this kind of growing awareness of self so that the mind, the human consciousness, if you like, that makes us now aware of ourselves and that we are distinct from the other and then aware also of the other. So again, this makes it possible for communication, 
for self-reflection and for reflection on the other, for the development of culture as we seek to relate to others and build uh, common characteristics into the life that we share together. Um, and again, religion is related to this as well. So uh, all of this is connected to then the rapid advancement of the human species in terms of its then capability to grow and develop technology and culture and uh, narrative and story and um, story then becomes so important to human beings and the way in which we understand ourselves in relation to some kind of story or narrative. Uh, and so the emergence of ancient religions begin to come onto the scene uh, as a way of encoding those stories of meaning uh, and other kinds of stories as well that are told that give a sense of identity and meaning and purpose and a location in the world. So this is quite a remarkable step forward um, it's what makes, in many senses, you know, human beings so distinct, the sense of language, mind, and consciousness. Um, and consciousness is a funny thing, you know, it's kind of hard to um, get a grip on exactly what it is, and people continue to research and research and research on what it is actually that we're talking about when we talk about human consciousness. If you think about yourself for a moment, let's not get too ex existential, but if you think about yourself for a moment, there's this capacity that human beings have, and we've talked about it a little bit in this embodiment series, to be aware of ourselves in such a way that I can actually look at my body and I can be aware of the fact that it's my body and that somehow my consciousness although it might be related to my body, feels distinct from it. It feels distinct in some kind of sense that I have a sense of self. And I can look at you and see a sense of self that you have and have a desire to relate in particular kinds of ways. And so this kind of emergence of human consciousness is a really profound and remarkable step in the process of evolution. I think in many respects... This is at least a part of why the language of something like the soul emerges in ancient religious constructs and paradigms and continues with us now. This is not something we've dispensed with. We're still trying to grope and search for language that might somehow describe this unique human experience that we recognize there's something kind of unique and sacred even about what it means to be human. And so our consciousness is this, is this curious, fascinating aspect of ourselves. And it's this kind of emergent reality, right? In other words, it is related to our embodiment. Because if we think about our minds, and again, we've perhaps mentioned this a couple of times, our minds are encoded or, or function through the workings of our brain and neurotransmitters and neural pathways and all of that kind of stuff that's going on in our brains and in our bodies to give rise to this sense of thoughts and ideas and feelings and so on. And yet somehow what's happened in human beings uniquely, as far as we can tell, uh, of course we haven't explored the entire universe, but as far as we know uniquely at this point, human beings have, um, from that series of neural pathways and connections uh, and so on have given rise to this emergence of this sort of human consciousness, the human self that makes us, if you like, self-aware. Uh, and this is something we're always freaking out that robots are going to eventually do as well, right? Uh, because it's something we recognise as unique to the human experience. Now, we might recognise it in especially some of our closest ancestors in the ape community, uh, for example, 
um, that there is some kind of simple self-awareness present there, but in the human being, the capacity for language and symbol, symbolic worlds um, and then a real distinct sense of self and other awareness means there's something that has emerged in the human um, experience that's distinct and unusual and fascinating, right? Uh, perhaps we could think about it like this. One way to think about it is that in human beings, for the first time, the universe itself, or at least components of the universe, have become self-aware, right? Billions and billions and billions of years of the universe uh, sort of expanding and growing and, um, and you know, often we think about the emergence of life as itself, the first um, building blocks of life that emerge on Earth, for example, is a remarkable phenomenon, and it is. Uh, and then the evolution of that life into complex forms of life is another remarkable development. Uh, but in human beings now, we get a creature emerge that's made up of, right, made up of the earth, um, made of stardust, you might say, in the sense that, you know, we are, we are built from the, from the materials around us, the, uh, the drink, the water, the sunlight, the oxygen, uh, all of the things that go into making us what we are as human beings. We are a part of the cosmos. We are a part of the ecosystem embedded within it. And yet we are those creatures who have in some ways become aware of ourselves. And so for the first time now, asking questions about meaning and purpose and identity and what it means to exist and to be. These are remarkable, interesting, profound questions for creatures in this universe to be asking. And so um, what a what a marvellous thing to reflect on, regardless actually of your religious persuasion, uh, regardless of exactly what you think that means. That's just a remarkable phenomenon in and of itself. And, uh, and if you do believe in some kind of divine reality, uh, maybe, and we've talked sometimes in this podcast about the idea of God not as another being out there floating around, but as the source of all uh, that is, as the ground of all being, to use Paul Tillich's language. Well, then in that case, there's this sense that billions of years on now, this, uh, this universe has given rise to beings that are capable uh, of relating, of being aware and of having consciousness in a particularly interesting and profound and unique kind of way. Now, of course, it's possible that in far-flung parts of the universe around us, this kind of thing has happened elsewhere. It's possible, of course, and maybe we'll never know the answer to that question, or maybe we will. I don't know. Who would know? Um, it's certainly possible, but even evolutionary theorists would recognise that on Earth, what has happened is particularly remarkable and filled with a series of quite uh, amazing coincidences that have given rise to the kind of human existence. Um, so we've got this emergence of the human consciousness and of self-awareness, and, and these make, us, make it possible for us to relate, as I said, to ourselves, but also to others in meaningful and even loving ways, and to be creators of beauty and of art and of culture and of technology and of innovation, and even we might say from a spiritual perspective, to relate to God in ways that perhaps other creatures do not. Now, I don't know where you're at 
with the God conversation. But I find that an interesting idea. So while we're talking about all of this kind of emergent consciousness, this thing that's greater than the sum of its parts, you know, it's connected to us, but somehow we recognize it emerges as something in itself that's kind of distinct. We aren't just a collection of neural pathways, but if somehow there's the sense of self that has emerged, this sense of consciousness, this thing we might talk about as us, as the soul even. Um, and even though this is kind of an emergent reality, it is still a, we, are, we are deeply embodied creatures. It's connected to what we are as human beings. And so while we tend to see ourselves as incredibly distinct and uniquely different, which we are in many respects, we're also incredibly connected to uh, the rest of the world that we live in and the other creatures that live on it. And um, it's interesting, you know, to think about ourselves. I've been reminded of this as I've been... Uh, walking out these last nine months with little Rufus in the house. Because you become, when you have a baby, this is not, these are not the kinds of reflections I was anticipating to have. But, you know, much of life is about satisfying the kind of primal needs of food, drink, uh, sleep, uh, pooing and peeing, <laughs> right? Uh and life essentially circles around those fundamental kind of what we might call quite animal qualities. Uh, and even watching Rufus when he gets hungry or when he um, when he gets thirsty and when he or when he gets desperate for something but he has no way to communicate that, you see this kind of animal drive and animal instinct in him to try and get the thing that he needs. And um, his body is crying out for. He's a deeply embodied little guy. Um, driven by these kind of instincts that are embedded within his embodiment. And then I recognised as I've been watching him, and this is something that my partner and I have reflected on a number of times over the last nine months, is how we start to become more aware of the way that we still do all of those things. I still get hungry, and if I get really hungry, then I can't think about anything else. No matter how sort of advanced I am, no matter, you know, I've got a PhD and I'm a, you know, a, a, a scholar, should we say that? Yes, um, all of these ways in which I could consider myself to be quite an advanced person. And yet, if I get really hungry, I can't think about much else. But it's kind of fascinating, you know. I, I am still driven by these kind of quite animal instincts and requirements of what it means to be a human being, you know. I think we tend to assume, perhaps especially in, in the West, in our kind of, you know, in the world of the, the autonomous, rational self, uh, we tend to assume, I think, that maybe we are just uh, what we might call in brain terms our neocortex, you know, the front of our brain where our conscious um, self in terms of, you know, the, self, the us that's reflecting and listening and thinking and um, that we're aware of, where our conscious memories are held and so on. We, are, we tend to assume that's who we are, just that bit there. But the rest of our brain is um, incredibly important and sometimes is running the show. You know, we, we have more, more, if you look at the human brain, there are the more primitive parts of the brain that evolved much earlier and that we share in large part with some of our very ancient ancestors. You know, we even might talk about our reptilian or our lizard brain, right? The, the very core base part of the human brain and then layered over top of that are these kind of more recent developments. But sometimes it's the lizard brain <laughs> that drives the show, the one that kicks into gear. And although we might think we're just being run by, 
you know, this very rational sense of ourselves. Uh, often it's other parts of us that are driving our actions and behaviours and actually our bodies themselves are informing how we live and behave and think and relate and act and remember. Uh, we are this, these integrated uh, beings, but we're just not very good at paying attention to our bodies a lot of the time and what they might be saying and letting us know. And so you end up in this interesting kind of situation as human beings where we're like, well, I'm just going to stop doing that thing. Um, you know, I, I have a tendency, I talked about hunger before, but I have a you know, I have a complicated relationship with food for all sorts of reasons. Maybe I'll get into that in another episode sometime. But, you know, I developed from quite a young age a pretty complicated relationship with food. And what I find sometimes is that I'm like, I'm trying to make a rational, logical decision about my course of action. I'm not going to eat those things for a while because, you know what, I'm just going to choose not to and I'm in control, right? And yet uh, what I find is I'm in less control than I, th- than I think sometimes and there's a whole lot more going on in me than simply that incredibly sort of rational, logical part that I'm so self-aware and conscious of. So what this means for us is that we have this kind of emergent sense of consciousness, but even that consciousness itself is being informed and is in relationship with the rest of our brains and bodies so that we are these integrated, interesting, fascinating, embodied creatures. Okay, so what does all this mean then for the way that we read something like the biblical narrative, right, which is the sacred text of the Christian tradition? Uh, and we talked a bit about uh, the Bible last time and about how it's not really a text that stands in opposition to something like evolutionary theory. It's dealing with a different set of questions at a different point in time. Um, But what is going on in this narrative and how can that be interesting, compelling, helpful to us in this conversation alongside the sense of who we are as evolved human beings? Um. Because what we find is the biblical text speaks to some realities that's, that, that maybe the science doesn't or that complements some of what the science is trying to tell us. So here's a few observations. One of the things that the biblical narrative itself does right from the very beginning is that it names human beings as uh, the image of God. Now, at the time, that's a profound countercultural statement against many of the surrounding nations for whom only royalty was said to be in the image of God and everybody else was there to serve those semi-divine leaders and rulers. So there is this sense of human dignity and human rights bestowed upon each human creature in this story. And so when we look at the world Uh, that we live in, filled with human beings, what the biblical narrative, what both the Christian and Jewish tradition wants to say is that all human beings are given that sense of dignity as being uh, the image of God. All human beings, regardless of their capacity to perform, to function, to do um, all manner of things, to create or to think, uh, no matter how smart or not, or beautiful or not, or strong or not, no matter what kind of gendered experience, sexuality, all human beings are named as being in the image of God, which means all human beings have this sense of bestowed dignity upon them, which you can't accomplish, achieve, or acquire. It's given, it's bestowed, it's named by the tradition, and we might even say by the divine. So that's one of the offerings that the biblical narrative wants to have for how we think about these human beings that have emerged on planet Earth. 
What the biblical narrative also wants to do, and also does, is name the ways in which, despite our capacity for profound uh, beauty and creativity and goodness and love uh, that, em- that, that emerges as, as our sort of symbolic world comes alive, as our language comes alive, as our self-awareness and other awareness comes alive, we're suddenly able to love in particularly profound ways, even in self-sacrificial ways. We're able to create. All of, all of this is, you know, beautiful. And yet we recognise that as human beings we're also capable of inflicting real and pervasive suffering on one another, on irreversibly damaging the environments we find ourselves in more than any other creature, along with this remarkable mind uh, that we have and this remarkable consciousness and level of skill and innovation and creativity that we have, we also find a greed and a jealousy and a violence that emerges amongst human creatures. That means among all of the uh, living things that we know of, human beings are the ones capable of the most profound evil. So we have this dual reality that exists within the human experience. And if you read the biblical narrative, it, it goes out of its way to highlight both of those realities, um, that both of those things are present for human beings. And, I th- and my sense of what the story is doing, of what the sacred text is doing, is it's, is it's calling us toward a certain way of being. It's saying when we engage in acts of beauty, of compassion, of generosity, and of love, then we are being most human. We are living into a vision of humanness um, that the Christian narrative, the Jewish and Christian narratives want to emphasize. Um, and so that while we are capable of both profound good and real harm, it's in the goodness that we are called to lean into, and it's there that we are named as being most fully alive. Now, in that space, then, spirituality, faith, religion, whatever name we want to give to how we navigate our sense of connectedness to God and others, it becomes, for want of a better word, a kind of technology, if you like, or a kind of uh, a way of navigating our reality. And so faith is not just about some abstract set of ideas or some perfect theory or some kind of religious belief system that we hold in our heads and all agree to. It has, instead, it has to be this embodied way of being because we're embodied creatures. And so it has to help us negotiate the very real challenges that we face. How do we live a life where we navigate those parts of ourselves which can either lean into beauty and goodness and love or can lean into jealousy and envy and violence and hatred? How do we negotiate that in ways that are healthy and lead to human flourishing, not just for ourselves, but also for others? And you can see within the scriptural narrative itself different ways of trying to negotiate that challenge. One of the ways for much of the journey of ancient Israel was to live according to this set of laws that governed their activity and behavior, trying to cultivate them into a kind of people who would uh, treat one another differently. And yet when we find our way into the Jesus story in the Christian New Testament and then into the followers of Jesus, there's this reflection that in fact the law in itself is not enough to be able to transform us or to change us or to empower us or to enable us to live according to that aspiration of goodness and beauty and love. And so instead what's and so more than just a set of laws, what's needed is some kind of mystical, profound transformation in ourselves and a transformation that flows out into the way that we form community with one another. 
And so our spirituality in this sense then is this way of engaging that conversation and a way of actually giving us resources to engage that wrestle and to engage our embodied lives, to encounter meaning and beauty and purpose. So the spiritual practices that you'll find within tradition, our tradition of prayer, of song, of ritual, even in the Christian tradition, if you think of the Eucharist uh, or the Holy Communion, eating and drinking as these really embodied acts that are also locations where we encounter something mysterious and transformational, something mystical, something more than our own lives and wants and needs. We are actually met in the place of our embodied reality by one another and perhaps also by that which we name as God. In this sense then, our spirituality, our religion, our pursuit of knowing God, knowing connectedness and knowing each other, this doesn't call us to escape our sense of embodiment, but to live into it in really meaningful and beautiful ways. So for the Christian message or the Christian story, the Christian tradition, it's this Jesus um, part of the story in particular, I think, that reveals to us a big part of what's going on in that story is how power and politics and human tendencies to cause suffering can also then become intertwined with religious systems and with our views of God. And so Jesus pushes back against that whole paradigm, that whole construct of the intertwining of power and politics, exclusionary practices, the causing of suffering and the marginalizing of those who are different, um, and instead, in the Jesus story, we see an un unraveling or an unpacking of that kind of vision, that kind of religious vision. And we're often instead a vision of the divine that's not grounded in fear, but in self-giving and sacrificial love that's not grounded in fear, but in solidarity and in joining with us in our experience of humanness and of suffering. So we encounter a story which offers us a way of seeing one another with love even those who we might name as our enemies, because we are confronted with our temptations to violence, especially, and, and perhaps the, the most uh, manipulative kind of violence is the violence that's in the name of good ends. You know, we have something good in mind and we just need a bit of violence to get there. And so instead we're offered a path that resists taking up that kind of power and violence over others, called instead into a kind of internal transformation that offers us a different way of being in the world. Something I've talked about a number of times throughout this podcast. So through all of this, we can see there's actual great scope for reflections on how our faith and our spirituality meet us as these unique human creatures and become resources for us to relate to God and to each other and to find ways of living that can foster a sense of life and a beauty and a flourishing rather than of violence and marginalization and hatred. Now, there are lots of things I haven't said here, and so much more we could go into. And so maybe we'll come back and revisit some aspects of this conversation in more detail in future episodes at some point. Um, I think there's still so much more to discuss about the sense of what is the soul, uh, lots of different perspectives we could throw into our conversation there, what human consciousness really is and what's going on there and what it means for us. And even questions about what it might mean to conceive of God. Where do our conceptions of God come from? How do we relate to God? 
And there are lots of ethical considerations that flow out of this as well. In other words, how do we live in the world? How do we relate and behave and participate in human flourishing rather than in uh, something else? So stay tuned for some future episodes that maybe we'll dive into some of that at some point. As always, you can get in touch via intheshift.com or on social media. You can, of course, also go to patreon.com slash intheshift to become a financial supporter of the podcast, and you can also there help give feedback on where things can go in the future. Thanks once again to Rhys Michel for his help in manipulating, massaging, and modifying the audio quality of this recording to make my voice sound listenable to you. And so we'll catch you next time on In The Shift.